Welcome to season five, the final season of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we've been talking to some real life experts on how they've been getting through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and still those darn feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we have been more than prepared for this moment than we ever would have realized. So let's get started and see what we can relearn one last time. Welcome back. It is Thursday, February 25th, 5.09 p.m. Pacific. Doesn't matter because I'm in the same time zone with uh, our good friend, one of the Patricks. Again, there are two Patricks in this podcast. And I just met another Patrick uh, recently today. There's something about Patricks and and mm-hmm. I guess um, the early 70s, um, where yeah, Patrick was like a really, really popular mm-hmm. name. Do you know actually where your your name comes uh, from other than like, you know, Irish and family, you know, name was, yeah, was there something else? With Patrick? I don't know. I actually don't think I mean, as, as I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say this definitively, but I'm pretty sure that there is no family connection to Patrick. It was just a name my mom liked. So you might be on the right track, even though my middle name is Timothy. And even though. We have a lot of Welsh and Irish in our back, our family backgrounds. I mean, my mom's maiden name is Kelly and, um, you know, there's a lot of that there. So, but I don't think Patrick is from that kind of that lineage. I mean, I don't, I don't know any Patrick's who are like young kids right now. Like I don't know a lot Mm -hmm. of teenagers or like, you know, elementary school aged um, people who are named Patrick, but men in their like late 40s into like late 50s that's all i know are patrick's yep, and know. so it's We're, super super interesting the, anyways luck of the draw yep, we got two we patrick's go. on mm-hmm. the podcast we're dying out though city. everybody just keep in mind we're disappearing so <laughs> the dinosaurs known as patrick's <laughs> <laughs> take time to okay. get us now <laughs> So oh, we wait. are with uh, Patrick J, as been referred to on different things in the in the podcast. But you know what's interesting <laughs> is I've been calling I've been calling uh, many people mostly by their first name. You're, you're you and the other Patrick are the only exception to that rule. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we're talking to Patrick today, and mm-hmm. um, I'm so excited to be in this moment where it's five interviews. Thank you for giving me five or so plus hours over the last Mm -hmm. year to really chronicle and archive and talk about what has been happening. We have gone all over the place. Our very first interview, we talked about backcountry. um, And early on, we were starting to experience, um, you know, some snowfall shortly after Mm -hmm. the shelter in place. And so this was one way to sort of get out um, of the Mm -hmm. house and and be active in some sort of way. Then we we also started talking about the fact that you're from the Pacific Northwest. And as we were Mm -hmm. starting to see in this summertime, a lot of activism in the streets, particularly around Portland and Seattle, um, with regards to not necessarily only against state sanctioned violence against people of color, particularly black and brown folks, but also just, you know, really a a resistance against a police state that was growing Mm -hmm. further and further at that time. 
And ironically, you know, we get to this last month of January 6th, where there was an absence of a police state. Instead, we mm -hmm. had the, you know, emboldment of a militia state um, mm -hmm. in the insurrection that happened at the Capitol. And so we've we've talked about so many different things. And now this is our, our last interview as we are coming upon the year, uh, the first year of, of COVID ending and beginning year two. Um, and I guess what I'm really curious about right now, if you wouldn't mind sharing, is before I pre pressed record, we started mm -hmm. talking about the fact that, A, I was going to interview you yesterday, and there was a miscommunication on the date and time. And before I know it, I see you with your pole, hiking poles and your full gear on, and you've zoomed me from out in the elements in, quote, backcountry. And then two, before I pressed record, we started talking about how challenging it is right now in your particular household where there are three people who are all needing requiring it's a necessity to have a functioning computer and computer camera and internet and this is what is going awry so first of all before we get into the computer talk what were you doing yesterday at around this time when we were supposed to be talking uh, and tell us all about <laughs> it what did it look like was it super dry was it lonely well, first of all, it was not a miscommunication. I don't think, I think it was just me, as I told you, maybe s slowly losing my mind or like losing track of important <laughs> details. Cause I actually thought that we, I, I mean, I actually thought that we had scheduled for Thursday. So it's one of those things where I don't really know um, why I, you know, why it was actually Wednesday, but I was thinking. Is this happening a lot to you? Well, I'm, trust me. I mean, I would, I asked myself that question, but I don't know. Maybe I am like losing some part of my cognition or something. I'll let you know. I'll get back to you on that. Um, but anyhow, what, what I was doing was like trying desperately to get out before it got too dark. Although um, I actually like that I had like left the house because I'd been doing work um, all in our house, as you were saying, uh, together. And then I was trying to get out to go take a short hike. And it's a really great time to go out, um, especially now because the days are getting longer. And so I was going out to just kind of hike for a couple hours um, and, and yeah, obviously I'd totally forgotten or didn't know that we were supposed to be meeting at five. So I was out actually up. I was, I that was probably more technically front country. It wasn't really back country. It would take a lot longer to walk there, but I was just kind of up on the hills on the foothills on the Carson range. And it was beautiful. Like yesterday was such a gorgeous day. It was beautiful and sunny and cold. Cause I guess we just had a cold front move through, but, um, but yeah, but no I was moisture getting outside. on the ground, right? No, it was actually the grounds drying out. And I, when I went up, um, I hadn't been out to kind of spend time outside, uh, for a week or so. Cause I messed up my leg skiing last week, but, um, but yeah, I got out and I was expecting it to be muddy and snowy because it was, uh, the last time I was up in the, in the foothills a couple of weeks ago and actually it's drying out now. So, um, the snow's mostly gone. It's, it's slowly retreating up higher. So we'll have to see if we get more, but the hiking was actually really beautiful. So it was great. I mean, it was wonderful to be outside and it, for me at least, and I don't know if everybody's the same, everybody probably has something that's similar, but just getting out, just leaving the house, getting out of, uh, the car and walking a few steps was like, uh, weight lifted. And all of a sudden, like everything looks different. It's almost like you changed a channel on the 
TV or started watching something else. Cause like, and I am always amazed that that happens so quickly, but I think it's one of those things that you take for granted when life is a little bit easier, when maybe you're just more in a, a, a rhythm where you do that kind of stuff. And I just think life is uh, so crazy and complicated and uh, oftentimes really heavy now that um, that kind of catches me off guard still sometimes, you know, I'll be like, wow, like everything is different now. Like you'll have this weird feeling of just like, you know, I don't know. Like I, I was actually thinking about that after we got off the uh, talking yesterday and I was on top of the Mesa, but um, there's a, you know how sometimes when you have like some kind of really loud background noise going on for a long period of time and you kind of get attuned to it and then it shuts off, you know? So like imagine <laughs> yes. you're like in a crowd or something and it shuts yeah, yeah. exactly and it shuts yeah. off, like really shuts off. And it feels yeah. like your head is expanding or like, suddenly like silence just like is it yes. it's not just a sound it's like a presence right like the yeah. the silence that's kind of like it is getting out of the car and walking away from the road mm -hmm. and away from where people is because you have that feeling of all of a sudden right and so I definitely had that yesterday which is nice I guess but it's also I guess kind of scary for people because like why should you take that for granted you know we can walk out of our house whenever but so, yeah, but it was beautiful. It was good to be in the hill. And I, I felt bad that I had forgotten that or didn't forget that I was completely unaware uh, that we were meeting at five. So, I mean, what you're explaining um, or describing about that, that shift that can happen from being inside all the time and in front of a screen to then outside and not anywhere near a screen, you know, everything is beyond <laughs> three dimensional, you know, um, and what that is like. I mean, that's literally the experience that that my partner and I, that Emily and I had when we first moved to Reno. You know, we mm -hmm. lived in downtown Los Angeles where the constant sound was of the freeway, which if you mm -hmm. close your eyes and imagine something different, <laughs> it just sounded like the ocean all the time. Yeah. And then there would be what some folks call the ghetto birds, but the helicopters, mm -hmm. the police yep. officers and mm -hmm. the news and um, paparazzi like in, mm -hmm. in helicopters all the time. So you always had helicopters and lights. And then you mm -hmm. had the constant sound of fire engines and police sirens and sometimes shootings and guns and and fireworks oh my god didn't even have to be anywhere near new year's eve or the fourth of july constant fireworks and so there was always noise to the point mm -hmm. where when it was a gunshot versus a firework you wouldn't even pay attention because you were just like well that's just life you know like it wasn't sudden yeah. it was ambient noise and when we moved here to mm -hmm. reno we could not sleep for like the first four days <laughs> Because it was too quiet. Like you could hear birds. You could hear someone walking down the street like three blocks away because it's so like, quiet. Oh my God, what is that? Yes, yes. And, and so it was outside. Yes, it was really startling and it was really scary because then you're paying attention to any little sound because any little sound means that something is approaching and maybe you weren't aware of it and didn't want it. It's like this really disorienting thing. Mm -hmm. And now I really appreciate it. I mean, we moved again recently in the in COVID time, we moved in our new house while it's just two blocks away from the mm -hmm. other house. The other original house had constant foot traffic because we were by mm -hmm. the VA hospital. So we constantly had people walking by. So the dogs mm -hmm. are constantly barking, all these things. We live in a different area now. And I go outside and I meditate by just mm -hmm. listening to a bird 
sing <laughs> or by just trying to listen to the breeze. Like I can hear the breeze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really, really amazing. And I and I can appreciate it now. But that sudden contrast, you know, mm-hmm. nine years ago when we first moved here was intense. And when I when I have left and gone to like a big city, I, I got to say, I'm not startled by it. I'm actually mm-hmm. I really like it. Like, I still miss mm-hmm. it. I feel like yeah, I no, feel like totally. noise, noise is still really comforting uh, mm-hmm. for me than the than the absence of it. But I, <laughs> I'm curious about something because we've also talked over the last year. From an anthropological perspective, I've asked you as an anthropologist, like, what is really important about this time too? Why are we struggling? Mm-hmm. I remember in the middle mm-hmm. of the year, mm-hmm. I was struggling. I think that a lot of us were struggling. And to your point right now about these things that we get used to, the ambiance versus the rare, right? I feel like we're mm-hmm. getting used to a lot of things right now um, than we did six months ago. So six months ago, we talked a lot in an interview about so- that we're social animals, that we need to mm-hmm. see each other, right? Um, in order to feel something. And I feel like my family in particular has gotten really used to seeing me on Zoom or FaceTime. Mm-hmm. And I was gonna go visit them and I still might now that I'm vaccinated and many of them are vaccinated mm-hmm. just, to, just to safely say hi and wave one more time since it's been like a year since I've seen them. And they were like, you know, and if you don't come, it's okay. We can just keep FaceTiming and Zooming. And I'm like, what? Why? What happened? Like we're getting, we're getting used to this. Yeah. This is a groove that is really mm-hmm. taking some traction. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what are you seeing as an anthropologist or what have you not been able to see um, because we're inside? Like, do people study people inside? Like, is this a time ripe for anthropological study about how we're doing inside? And how would you do that? I'm sure. I have no doubt there's ethnographers that are working in the Zoom sphere and in kind of COVID isolation study. I don't know. I haven't read anything or seen anything like overtly on that topic or kind of engaged in anything there. But, you know... I think that one of the things, that, I mean, I guess that from from my point, my perspective as an anthropologist likely will kind of look back on this as maybe a time in which we started to deal with tech, continue to deal with technology kind of changing our lives, like in fundamental ways or shifting our lives in fundamental ways. So yeah. I think maybe more than anything, like the ways that technology can facilitate or maybe work against, you know, the the social needs that we have. And we kind of talked about this before. We'll probably be more maybe what anthropologists would be interested in or how they're we're reworking the use of this kind of virtual space, right? To become, mm-hmm. you know, it'll always be virtual. But as you say, with your family, maybe something that becomes a more durable component of our daily lives. Because I think it's kind of interesting. One thing I've been thinking a lot about working on Zoom uh, which I don't like. I mean, I mean, really don't like in deep ways, but also now I'm really used to doing and kind of conversing in is that um, up until this point, I, I've, and I'm sure this is different for other people who use this technology differently, but I've always looked at something like video conferencing or this kind of like, you know, video phone thing is like a really, really kind of poor substitute for like ha- being together with people, right? Or, or doing mm-hmm. things, even, whether that's work or family or whatever. But I almost wonder now if we're shifting to something where this is going to be a more functional, durable part of how we socialize as people. Because at least for me, I don't ever think that this would have been a replacement for something. But like, you know, my family now has a, a weekly Zoom call, right? So 
you know, my mom, my brothers, my sisters, my nieces, my nephew, you know, we'll all be together in Zoom every week. And it's like, we didn't do that before COVID, which, and I'm sure that's a really common experience, right? That people yeah. are having, but it's like, you know, I, I think before COVID, we could go a month without like talking to each other as, as a family, right? I mean, we talk to yeah. each other individually and whatever, but now there's that thing. And, and one thing that I think we've, all kind of thought and talked about is that this will go on, right? Like, you know, when does that Zoom stop? Because like, I don't live where my family lives. I mean, my family in Portland could still get together and they do, you know, normally, but my mom's down in Arizona now. So it's like, you know, I think that when we think about the end of COVID, one of the things we're going to be dealing with is does what stops when COVID stops, right? Um, and what continues. And, you know, there's been all kinds of media coverage about like work, has work been transformed, has, you know, have these different things. But I almost wonder on a social level, what parts of our lives during the pandemic will we not want to let go of, which is totally counterintuitive, right? Because I want to let go of all of right. it. Like, I, I mean, I look yeah. at it and I think about it, like you had the question for this interview, which was like, okay, let's imagine a time capsule. What are you going to put in there to remember? And my yeah. first thought was, can I be sure that that time capsule won't be opened until I'm dead? Because if I can, I'm putting everything from the last year in there so I never have to see it again. <laughs> Just like put it in the foundation of a building. Don't open it, right? Until yeah. you're ready. Yeah. Because that, put it in the I, walls. I, put it in the walls. Yeah, exactly. Deep <laughs> underground. But in a salt mine somewhere, right? But I don't, I don't know. I mean, I was, I was thinking about that's not how a time capsule works, Patrick. A time capsule will eventually be opened. (laughs) Fine, that's their problem down the the line. I don't want (laughs) that exactly. That's their problem. (laughs) They're going to have to figure it out. But um, (laughs) no, I don't know. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, I do think that there's obviously we're all going to be changed in certain ways. But maybe in terms of the the kind of social dimensions of it. It will be interesting to see, um, you know, what we want to carry on with, right? And I think it's possible that we we have changed in some maybe more radical ways than we think about. Uh, yeah. But I don't know for sure. I don't. I'm not sure what that's going to look like after the fact. I mean, what's so interesting is that you you say this word, and 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 put it in this phrase, and I'm like, right, yes, and I forgot about that because now there's more people with me, so it's more the norm, right? And that is like that idea of stopping. When does mm-hmm. anything ever stop? And see what mm-hmm. happened when before COVID, there was there was a growing but a small Mm -hmm. group of people who telecommuted to work, myself included, right? Mm -hmm. These are folks who Zoom all the time for work meetings, where Zoom Mm -hmm. is your office, Zoom Mm -hmm. is your your location. It is a place that you go to for meetings. And Mm -hmm. Zoom was also your mode of transportation. It was your car Mm -hmm. and your office all at once, right? So technology was how you teleported in that particular kind of way. And I think that the rise of telecommuting really came by a decrease that was developing, although I think it's now widening, but there was a a closing of the gap, uh, the digital gap, right? The digital divide Mm -hmm. between those who had access to the internet, those who had access to a computer and not. Like I remember, you know, I started teaching in high school in the late 90s, in, in literally 1999. And we had an overhead projector. It had to use mm-hmm. light. There, We barely had a television. Um, we still cart. had chalkboards. Yes, the video card. We still had chalkboards. Um, 
you know, I don't think I had a cell phone, but I might have. And it was super small and didn't text like it didn't do uh-huh. anything. So you, it was just a phone. Um, yeah. And we had some desktop computers, like one in the classroom. But I remember then a few years later, ooh, the laptop and the affordable laptop came in. So then you mm-hmm. could get like a classroom cart of laptops that would come in. And I got my first LCD projector and we got whiteboards mm-hmm. instead of chalk. It went to markers and all these kinds of things started to change and then you got a smartphone and mm-hmm. that meant all of a sudden with a smartphone that you could get on the internet you could even write papers like I have a niece mm-hmm. who's in college right now but when she was in high school she wrote all of her essays and did all of her homework for high school on an iPad mini she refused <laughs> to use a computer and she learned how to type on a flat screen not a keyboard right yeah, like is- in terms of how people are interacting with technology and paper and pens and all these things like mm-hmm. it's, it's wild, right? And so we get to a point now where you could telecommute to work with a phone, with a cell phone mm-hmm. and not a computer. Like I have students who do Zoom yeah. on their cell phone, oh, yeah, right? Or definitely. on their iPod and not even on a computer. So, mm-hmm. you know, that divide was shrinking. But then when you have massive amounts of joblessness and mm-hmm. precarious incomes, you can't pay for the internet, which means you also might not be able to pay for the cell phone bill. And so what starts to happen, what I'm noticing, especially in this conversation, even though we just started it, is that it really is that the internet has become the office and the transportation. Mm-hmm. It's your plane, it's your car, it's your everything. It's how I get to you. And when mm-hmm. I was telecommuting in, in a smaller group of people, you know, it was weird that I was always in front of the computer. Nobody understood how I could do it, you know, and like, oh, your commute, it's so great. You just go <laughs> down the hall and you're already at work, right? But the thing is, when you telecommute, and I learned this from back then, and I'm learning it even more now, is you never stop working. Mm-hmm. Because no, work totally. isn't a place that you get in your car or your train mm-hmm. or you walk or the bus to. It is mm-hmm. in your hands. It is all around you. Yeah. And so I have noticed, and I'm wondering if you've noticed this, I don't know a weekday from a weekend anymore. Because oh, I no, take totally. breaks in the middle of a work day to be like, no, I got to mm-hmm. get out of here. And I'll go for a long walk or do something totally different that I might have in the past only reserved for a weekend. <laughs> But now I'm doing it now and I'm working on the weekend because I have to make up that time. Is that happening to you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Definitely. Well, okay. A couple of things. One thing that's a little bit different is um, I have a daughter, so she goes to school, even though it's this weird, crazy hybrid schedule. So the weekends are real for her. But for me, no, you're absolutely right. Like I have like work and then I have times that are non-work like the weekend which I guess is technically the same concept as a weekend (laughs) but the but the days they're not they don't match anymore in any way and they're not even like two days they're more like two hours like or like like you say like the weekend has become like 48 hours you know it went from 48 hours to now like a sequence of many small two to three hour periods that are like interspersed with sleep and eating no totally that's it but the other thing that I have to say about the weekend and this is kind of related to what we were talking about in terms of being outdoors now the weekend I want I don't want to go outside I don't want to go to the mountains I don't want to go try to ski I don't want to go to a trailhead I want because 
there's so many people. Many people. Right? Yes. Because it's like before it's like the weekends were like, oh, okay, sometimes they're crowded, like if the snow's good or if, you know, it's a, a holiday weekend or something. But now every single weekend is like tons of people everywhere. So now I actually kind of cower in the house or just avoid going into <laughs> any of that. Right. So the weekends yes. have become like, well, may yes. as well work or may as well do this because I'm not going to go out and do that which is exactly. yeah, weird. And it's like, we have to make our own weekend. You have to carve yeah. out your own mm -hmm. weekend. Yeah. And we all know how well that works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not working, <laughs> but, but then there's also this thing, you know, that I was, I was sharing about how now the internet technology, zoom, FaceTime, all these things have become the commute. And so, mm -hmm. or the way that you get to someplace, it's your transportation vehicle. So mm -hmm. you were saying before we started talking and recording it, that you've got some computer issues going on at home. So oh, that's yeah. essentially like somebody who needed a car or needed mm -hmm. a bus pass or needed some mm -hmm. way of getting to work or to school can't because mm -hmm. there's no way to do that. Like, so, so what does that mm -hmm. look like? It looks like you're about like 150 feet down, breathing through like a, an aqua lung, and <laughs> no, <laughs> the no, regulator no. fails. Like, so, 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 wait, I mean, so this what's isn't happening? like this isn't like a bus. This is like <laughs> this is like your breathing apparatus. Don't don't mess with it. No, we do have a problem <laughs> because in our household right now, like we have three computers that are functional, but they're all in various states of decay and dying. Right. So, like mine is the newest, and then my partner's is the next newest, and my daughter uses one that was ancient, like we were talking about before. Yes. And like, you know, everything is fine if they're all working, but like, every, you know, various computers have had issues for several months now. And if one of them goes down, I think we all know that it's going to be a bad, bad situation. So we've got to figure out a way to make sure that we're, we're getting some kind of reinforcements or, or resupply. Cause yeah, I mean, you realize the, I mean, I guess that we would be like our students that we'd start to zoom on our phones or write papers on our phones or who knows <laughs> what we would do until our phones die. Um, but yeah, we have become much more wedded to technology in our daily lives than we used to be. I mean, I would have said before COVID that um, I'd gotten to be really dependent on my phone, right? Just for, yeah. um, you know, texting and looking something up on the internet, but my computer, I could take or leave. And in fact, I used to look at my computer as kind of work. Like that was like yeah. putting the computer up for the weekend to mix both of our weird metaphors was wonderful, yeah. right? Like, it's like, oh, I didn't, I don't even have to look at the computer. Yeah. Um, but now the computers, yeah, like you said, it's not even that. Now it's everywhere. Like you watch Netflix on it or you like, you know, it's just always being used. So yeah, computer dying is not going to be a good scenario. So we've got to figure no. out... Um, how to replace that. And I would imagine, you know, that's like, of course, that, that's like the person saying, you know, we have three cars and if one of them breaks, then we're going to be absolutely screwed. I mean, you know, teaching, you know, this too, from teaching in Zoom and looking at the environment that our students are learning in. Yeah. Plenty of them are learning on like, a, you know, a five-year-old, you know, phone that barely can connect. And last week I had a student who was in class while driving. Ah, lovely. <laughs> so, so it was so, so like, the, the cell phone. Don't answer any while questions. Driving the car. Yes, I'm like you. Just listen. In fact, turn off your camera. I trust that you're listening. Yikes. Like my class has become my class has become a podcast that you just it's a radio station. But yeah, um, so yeah. I, I I'm curious about your thoughts on something. 
you mentioned, and I've experienced it too, and I think many of us have, that those loved ones who we might have seen quarterly, uh, you know, mm-hmm. twice a year or just once a year, now we're talking to them weekly. Um, mm-hmm. My sister, my sister, and I sometimes spend uh, weeks at a time speaking daily. And I'm like, can we make mm-hmm. this stop? It's too much. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on why we are communicating in some way, shape, or form with people, our loved ones, community members, friends, more often mm-hmm. than we would have had we not been in a pandemic and we could have seen them. Like it, it, I, I, I get know, what we're I, doing because I'm doing it, but I don't understand yeah. why I'm doing it. I know. Well, I, I don't know the actual answer. I know what I've been thinking a lot about, which has to mm-hmm. do with, um, unfortunately, things that are probably kind of depressing and whatever. But I think that there is... There's two things that for me personally, I think are behind a lot of it, which is that there is uh, isolation, right? Um, and social isolation. And I think that, w- you know, we use the word isolation to talk about somebody who's isolating when they've been exposed to COVID or, you know, in quarantine or something like right. that. But we're all experiencing, I think, in deep ways. And we were talking about this, as you said, over the summer, I think forms of isolation, social isolation that we haven't experienced before. And along with that sense of isolation, there's a, I think, you know, for me, there's a lot of emotions that are tied to it, which, you know, I, I guess everybody's different, but, um, but I think that uh, the feelings of uh, being lonely or also kind of grieving uh, contact, right, uh, or connection with other people are, are part of that sense of isolation. So I think the ways in which we communicate with our families are the, are seem to me really totally normal, because I think if I'd gone through a period in which, you know, I don't know, for health reasons or some, you know, catastrophe or something, I'd been cut off um, from contact, I'd probably try to cling to my contact with those that I care most about, right? Or kind of supercharge it with meaning or emotion. And I think before the pandemic, we all get so much, you know, like we were talking about before, so much out of our, our social interaction with others, even people we don't know well, right? Just kind of casual acquaintances or maybe even total strangers that you start a conversation with or whatever, that I think our families, you know, we didn't necessarily lean into our families for that. But I think that, I mean, I don't know, desperation is probably too strong a word, but I think there's different stakes now when we think about our connection to those people that we can remain in contact with, right? And and I think that that is kind of sobering for me because I think it's a reflection of, you know, I don't know, more and more for me, it just seems kind of like a, ref- a reflection of grief about uh, how hard it's been, right? Like how hard this stretch has been. And I still can't believe, I mean, I was thinking about our interview um, and, you know, I, I mean, one of those things I'd like to put in the time capsule and not see again is this kind of mm-hmm. sense of grief from this year, because there's, um, I don't know, there's something about grieving a loss. And I think we all have grieved, like losing somebody really close to us or something that, um, or maybe it's not even a person, maybe it's some, you know, dream you had or aspiration or goal or something. And that grief on a personal level or an individual level, obviously, is probably one of the strongest forces that gets dealt us as individuals, right? But there's it, that, that experience doesn't necessarily prepare you for the kind of collective grief, I think, that exists around us, right? So, 
And I don't know. I mean, the only analogies I can think of is being in a family that's lost, you know, a member of that family, right? And having to right. be within that family as it grieves is kind of an analogous process. But I think kind of the grief of living through a pandemic and seeing the effect of the pandemic every day in ways uh, around you and on people that you care about, right? Um, it just permeates, I think, you know, my experience of this year, this last year that we've had. And um, I don't think that, I don't know that as a society or even as an individual, I've figured out a way to kind of deal with that. It's only, it seems like over the last few months that I've thought a lot about this experience of collective grief. Um, and you I mean, know, I think how can we conceptualize of grief, maybe not as an individual experience, right? But as something that we, that we have to go through together or that we are going through together at the same time, right? Which is not really a usual, I mean, that's not a normal state of affairs. No, um, no, absolutely so not. And, and yet there's still that variance of like how close we are to, to mm -hmm. the intensity of the grief, you know, like mm -hmm. hospital yeah. workers right now never get a break from it. Yeah, um, no, totally. You and I can turn away from it. We can turn mm -hmm. it off. We can look away. It's not necessarily in front of us all the time, like folks who are who are medical professionals and trying to save people's lives and seeing people who are sick. But I, I, I almost feel like we're past the grief. And, and, you know, grief isn't like a one-time shot, you know, like mm -hmm. grief is something that, that comes in waves and it'll return and it'll recede. It's much like the ocean, you know, like it has a low tide and it has an, a, a high tide and it has a consistency to it. And I feel like where we're at right now, at least in the States, maybe even just on the West coast, because if I'm thinking about my friends and family who live in like Texas, I don't know that <laughs> they're where we are right now, considering the disaster of the, um, you know, unnatural uh, effects that just happened uh, just last week over in Texas, losing power, losing water. Many people still don't even have access to fresh water in Texas mm -hmm. right now, but there's this place between grief and like happiness. And it's mm -hmm. this like middle idling place. It's like a neutral, if you will. Like we're not, we're not reflecting on the past, but we're not like really thinking too much about the future. Everyone's mm -hmm. kind of in this, like, I can think about maybe today, tomorrow, and maybe the, the two days after tomorrow, but that's about it. And mm -hmm. so I know for, for me, I have found that for my own personal experience and for loved ones who are just like shattered by, by, you know, closer to death experiences or becoming sick. When I have felt the most heaviness of grief, I don't want to talk to you. I don't mm -hmm. want to hear you. I don't mm -hmm. want to do anything. There is mm -hmm. no social connectivity. And mm -hmm. when I'm really, really happy, I don't want to talk to you either because I'm out there living my best <laughs> life. I don't have time to tell you about how great I am. I'm out there living my best life. It's in that middle part of I'm not grieving and I'm not happy I'm just kind of idly here and just vacillating between these two. Um, and that's where I feel like then we want the connection because otherwise you're like either bored or isolating. Like it's like you're trying mm -hmm. to stay away from the extremes of the two. And um, it's, it's really, you know, wild. I would prefer talking to people on the phone than Zoom mm -hmm. right now. Um, I did uh, get like wireless headphones that are really great. So sometimes I put up my laptop outside and I like have a meeting while fully standing and I'm full body. So I'm very small, <laughs> but at least I'm uh -huh. full bodied. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's just, you know, I, I, there's something to, if I, 
again, that's what it is. It's like full body. You know, like when we're on uh-huh. Zoom, it's shoulders up and mostly yep. just our faces and our eyes. But when mm-hmm. we're actually in the same physical place, it's like a full body experience. It's like more yeah. exhausting in that way and more mm-hmm. invigorating at the same time. So you need less of it. But if I'm only yeah. going to see your face or I'm only going to hear your voice, I need more <laughs> of it. Like it's just, I can't mm-hmm. get enough of it in some way, shape or form. And again, it's only if I'm not grieving or not mm-hmm. again outliving my best life like you were outliving your best life yesterday <laughs> and it got interrupted by a zoom phone call with me you see what i'm saying like that's that's what i'm talking about in terms of like when we don't see each other it's in the depths of the best and the worst yeah. and speaking of the best and the worst i'm actually wondering i don't know if you've heard this the current administration under biden has decided to still continue to have schools across the country have state mandated testing at the end of the year to see where students are. And last year, Trump oh said, God. no, we're not doing the testing. Forget it. It's just like, you know, not, not, a, not, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. But Biden, the current administration is like, yes, we have to have it because we have to get an assessment of how children are being affected by the pandemic. And I'm like, really? Yeah, I'd be like, do you really? Because I can tell them. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) so what are your thoughts on this as a parent? uh, Yeah, colossal waste of time. We have a ton of struggles. You know, yeah. I mean, I would say that seems like a completely misguided use of uh, resources, frankly. Um, More than anything, like, you know, I understand the kind of stress for students and for teachers to prep for exams and teach to exams and all that. But more than anything, it's like, why, given the current situation in our schools, would you devote energy to standardized testing? Um, It seems just so far off the deep end. I mean, I get that you want to understand the impacts of COVID on um, a generation of students, but guess what? You're going to be dealing with that for the next decade. So if yeah. you're talking about statistics and data, oh, well, you're going to have plenty of that. You know, there's not going to yeah. be any dearth of figuring out how bad this went. But I can tell you as a parent, um, it's that to me is incredibly frustrating because we're, you know, I think, I think it's different for kids of different ages and for families who have kids of different ages, because I think if you're maybe not in the, the kind of upper grades in the K-12 system, you know, there's one thing about like doing busy work as a fourth grader or whatever, or working on your reading comprehension or those kind of things where like the results of learning may be a lot more tangible. But by the time you get up into middle school and high school, students are really, they're obviously still learning, but they're doing a different kind of learning than younger kids are. And I can just tell you from, from being the parent of a high schooler, there is the, the expectations of what students can do in this current uh, model is completely out of whack. I mean, completely. So I think that, you know, the idea of having standardized tests to measure how completely out of whack the educational experience is going is I'd probably rather prefer that those teachers spent that time and the students spent that time solving the kind of day-to-day problems that they have, you know, managing curriculum, managing the learning environment in the schools, because, um, you know, I think that, you know, I get that you know, administrations uh, and bureaucracies are, are vested in these these practices, right? Because I think a lot of what's going on is the kind of, you know, the, the motor of the institution is running. And so it doesn't have an, a kill switch or something. Right. And, but I think that, um, 
you know, that, you know, as somebody, <laughs> I mean, I think when you are privileged and when you're able to work within institutions or within systems, the fact that there's no kill switch on the engine, uh, you can manage that, right? Because you juggle, you use your own advantage, you use your own privilege. I mean, I think it's the people who don't have those advantages typically that pay the price. Well, guess what? Everybody's paying the price now. So um, I think that, you know, you know, this kind of touches on something that I've, I, and I think we talked about this over the summer too, that I've um, really been experiencing a lot, um, not, not just related to COVID, but more perhaps related to issues of racial justice and um, other, you know, transitions that are going on in, in our lives. But, you know, we confront privilege in different ways now under COVID, right? And, you know, confronting a system that no longer works for my family or for my daughter educationally um, is, you know, on the face of it, yes, I get it. Um, everybody's, you know, the one thing everybody wants to say is everybody's dealing with it. But just like we were talking about, I think when we were talking about um, the murder of George Floyd or about yeah. activism around that, Yes, that's true. At the same time, something becomes more visible. You can comprehend it, but it also, in essence, casts into relief your ex your experience with hindsight, right? Or in the in the back. So we're not used to right. looking back at ourselves and seeing who we are in that kind of relief, right? Because we like to make up who we weren't in the past, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh no, certainly I, you know, I was socially conscious a year ago, two yeah. years ago, obviously, right? <laughs> But when you go through these experiences, it's like, you know, I'll find myself gritting my teeth or angry or just raging actually sometimes at how unfair it is and unfortunate it is that my daughter, but also all kids are dealing with the difficulties that they're dealing with in their schools and their peer groups or whatever. And it's only a half breaths pause before you realize entire sections of our society have been experiencing those same dislocations and disjunctures in their schooling, in their kind of, you know, peer group lives and whatever. And, you know, I think that for me, that's inseparable from some of the grief that I experienced dealing with COVID or dealing with the broken parts of our society, you know, that I think we're, we're all dealing with. And so, yeah, when I hear something like that about standardized testing, I mean, I guess part of me understands that this is this is the system, this is the administration, but yeah. part of me longs to have somebody stand up and just say, you know, like we were saying, really? I mean, you know, people are suffering and it's not just uh, those classes or groups of people that you were comfortable let suffer prior to this, but it's right. everybody is looking at you now and saying, this isn't working. And at what point does, you know, that experience of looking around and saying, yes, we, we are all suffering now cause, you know, change to happen or cause some disjuncture and standardized tests in schools. Yeah. I mean, whatever that, you know, the students will do them, they'll get their statistics, they'll, they'll find that stuff. But the broader picture is, is that, you know, I think that we're looking a lot of uh, a lot of parts of our society that under COVID are not sustainable, but also without COVID, probably weren't really sustainable either, right? And oh, that's they another absolutely thing we weren't. ask ourselves about like what do we leave yeah. behind and what do we take with us coming out of COVID? Um, I know for me personally that um, there are a lot of stuff, like I said, that I'd like to leave behind, but there's also parts of me that I won't be able to leave behind easily. I think we're all going to be changed by this. Right. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that uh, I think that there's uh, there's, you know, there's a real kind of 
uh, stress and anxiety that comes when I when I think about something like that. Something simple, you know, standardized test. What's the big deal? Whatever. But I think about it's it's the same thing with like a homework assignment or even in my classes, right? You know, I hear from students every week who are like, you know, by the way, I have this, you know. <laughs> I have this problem uh, this that came up this week and I'm not going to be able to get this assignment. And I get these emails and it used to be that they were always the same thing. And in my brain, I could say about that student, well, maybe the student's making up an excuse. Maybe they're having a genuine problem. Sure. You know, this is how I'm going to approach that. Now, when I get those emails, I always, part of me like tenses, right? Because the reality is that um, I know, you know, in a certain sense, I know what my students are going through and how much do you want to know? <laughs> like, I mean, at a certain right. point, it's like that, like introduces a whole level of, um, again, exposure to that blast furnace of suffering that seems to sure. be, and most people will be like, oh, what are you talking about? It's not a big deal to see that a student had a parent that is ill and in the hospital in Davis, and they have to drive over the pass to get there. And that means losing right. work and what a oh, big deal. These kind of things happen, but it's this kind of constant repetitive, you know, uh, thing that, yeah, it gets harder and harder to take, right? Um, and I know you're, you know, I, I, I'm happy to hear that you think that you kind of feel like that part of the COVID experience maybe is changing now and we're kind of coming out and we're looking at spring and whatever. And sometimes I feel that way, but for me, I'm not sure, you know, things seem to get more and more tenuous as time goes on rather than less, you know? And I think that oh, the I'm, idea I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking at all that like things are, are getting better. I've, I've been talking, or just changing. you know. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, they, I think they're, I think they're changing, but I think there's no guarantee that it's changed for better. You know, every, yeah. I, I have really a, likened this phrase recently and it, it's just stuck with me everywhere, which is that, you know, people have some familiarity with the phrase, you know, like every, every problem has a solution, but <laughs> I have found in the last 10 years of my life that no, actually every solution has a problem, you know, like every solution, <laughs> whether it's medicinal or a procedure oh, yeah. or, you know, um, a, a change or an adaptation in how you work or go to school or live, like creates more problems, you know, like they are, they are together problems and solutions live together. There isn't, you know, just one way, one direction that they go go in. And one of the things that's interesting with testing, right, is that testing has testing that standardized testing is different than assessments, you know, giving someone a test, giving someone an assignment to, to write an essay, or to answer um, and analyze something that's assessing, what are they learning, but also assessing mm -hmm. what are you teaching? And is it sticking? These high stakes yeah. standardized tests are not about any of that. They literally yeah. give a test to a bunch of people, they figure out who did the best that becomes the marker and everybody is either above that or below that. And we call it high stakes testing because because they have a response to them. If your school tests very low, mm -hmm. then depending on who tested low and why, you might get more money. If your students tested well or better than the year before, you don't get rewarded with more money. You actually get less. And so mm -hmm. what is going to happen in the testing of this last year? We're going to see that the most affluent children and students who had access to technology, who had access to small class sizes, who may have even had access to going to school in person all the time, are mm -hmm. going to do well on tests as they always have. And those who have always struggled with the tests are going to be struggling even more mm -hmm. because of all the things that they didn't have access to, to build up and help their learning and sustain that. And so what's going to happen then? 
every school in that in in that area and with those kinds of students are going to need massive amounts of money. Well, guess what? We already knew that those schools needed massive amounts of money. And where's that money going to come from? Right. Mm -hmm. And so but the thing that's always bothered me, Patrick, is that we never have these kinds of conversations about the military. We never say the military needs to have so Mm -hmm. many different kinds of testing every year and you're either going to get more funding or you're not Mm going to get more funding. There's nothing to assess how good or bad they are. And if I were by all standards to assess how good the military is doing, especially the National Guard that is supposed to be here in the United States, Mm -hmm. and I look at January 6th insurance, insurgents rather, I'm thinking they did horribly but that doesn't mean they get more money, right? They, we already have so much money. If there's a socialized program in the United States, it's socialized militarism. Like uh-huh. we pay so much for that and never question how good or bad it is. And yet this is where so much of the danger is when we're looking at uh-huh. future insurgences and a rise in militarism. Like this is, this is where, where, where the danger zone is, but that's the place where we don't even look. We don't even well, assess that area. Yeah, and I, I don't know, I've <laughs> I've ranted about this myself frequently to the two other people who live in my household, maybe to others, <laughs> I don't know, but like how many 170 some odd 9-11s last year did we live through? I don't know what the te- the count is up to right now. Um, we're at over, we're, we're, at, we're at half a million like, people yeah. that have so, died and that's so every war, the, every war my question, Exactly. My question is what's the proper response to the next 9-11? What's the proper response to the next terrorist attack that kills 3,000 Americans? I can tell you that I'm not by, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily an isolationist. And I'm not somebody who doesn't believe in dealing with a real problem that, like terrorism that might come up. I'm not, a, you know, you know, whatever. But what is the proper <clears throat> response as a nation that we're going to have to another 9-11? Because if it's mobilizing militarily and spending billions or trillions of dollars to deal with something, I find that logic extremely unsustainable. In fact, um, I would propose to every single American that they look in the mirror and imagine 9-11 happening and what they were doing when it was happening, and then to shrug their shoulders and to look at the mirror and walk away. Because as a society, we've done that 150, 60, 170 times this last year. So um, you know, I, I, you know, a large chunk of my adulthood was spent dealing with, uh, you know, w- the fallout of 9-11, as was the lives of many Americans, right? Um, and, you know, if we can come through an experience like we've gone through as a nation, like COVID, I don't see how we don't reassess our spending on instruments of death and destruction. Um, if we're unwilling to protect our own citizens on our own soil, um, and their livelihood. Um, I see no tangible logic to spending, you know, $170 billion on a new fighter jet. Um, what exactly right. is that fighter jet going to do? Is well, that then can we protect- talk about Mars? Can we talk about Mars then, Patrick? In yeah. the middle of the pandemic. Whitey on much Mars. To, yeah, Whitey on Mars instead of Whitey on the moon, which was, you know, uh, a great uh, Gil Scott Herring, you know, poem. Mm-hmm. 
um, about we have all this civil unrest. We have all this casualty from uh, an unnecessary war in Vietnam. We have all these mm -hmm. all this poverty, all this destruction happening in the United States. But oh, look, we put we put Whitey on the moon. So isn't that so fantastic? And so in the middle of this pandemic, we have sent not a person. No, no, not mm -hmm. a human at all. A robot that yep. has wheels and a camera on it to Mars. And we are so excited and we are so elated. And I got to tell you, I'm looking at pictures from this camera robot AI thing on Mars. And it looks exactly like, uh, like the Zoom, the Zoom no. of you yesterday. <laughs> you were so like, I'm wondering, dang, we could have just gone to Stead. I mean, we could have bought a drone at Costco and gone out to Stead and we would have had the same experience. Yes. So, so why? So why are we putting robot on Mars? And I don't while have an so answer. many of us are like, what? I think you have to understand, though, that you're talking to a kid who is absolutely fascinated with the Apollo <laughs> <laughs> missions. Like I grew up and went through a period in my childhood where like the coolest thing by far in the world was the fact that humans are going to get in rockets and like blow themselves up is. into space. It, it is still, still is, probably the, the coolest thing yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I don't have an easy answer for that because I think part of me is, I mean, I obviously am blown away by the amazing things that humans can do with their bodies and their brains and problem solving. But I do think that, you know, that's exactly the same uh, kind of conversation that we were having about the defense budget or whatever, what connection does that have to humanity, right? Because I think one thing that you'll see about space and space exploration and um, that entire kind of realm of existence is like, it's it's been explicitly, at least ideologically or rhetorically about humanity, right? Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, yes, about nationalism during the Cold War, right? And we can see those those pieces, but I think a lot of that ideology was about like, you know, looking beyond the nation state or looking beyond national political yeah. communities or whatever. It's like, oh, humans are reaching for the stars or whatever. And that aspiration I think is, um, good, but as you point out, as and as Mr. Scott Heron pointed out, antithetical to not valuing the humanity that we live with here on planet Earth, right? It's it's incommensurate, um, and we are all contradictory, right? Like you know, fundamentally, our ourselves are contradictory. But I, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think how do we juxtapose? You know, 3,000 people dying on a day when a, a rover lands on Mars and, <sighs> you know, we, we, you know, have, you know, hundreds of millions of people like celebrating this amazing engineering feat and yet we are seeing people die, right, that, you know, to something that had a solution. We didn't need to develop a Mars rover to, to figure out that we needed to do a better job handling a pandemic. Um, but um, again, <laughs> yeah, real questions. You, you remember when I was saying that there's like grief and then there's happiness and that's when we are not necessarily wanting to be in communication with people. <laughs> and, and I feel like when you're really, really happy, it's because you're like really, really present, you know, mm -hmm. and you want to stay really present. You probably want to stay mm -hmm. more present when you're happy. And, mm -hmm. and when we're in grief, it's like we're in grief, not because we're thinking about the past, but because we're thinking about the future. Right. And we're having a hard time thinking about the future or imagining mm -hmm. a future without said thing or said person or said routine. Mm -hmm. And so really, I feel like the problem that we might have the most during this time is looking back 
and remembering the past. Like if we think about the uprisings of the summer, if we think about the massive reckoning and like racial, you know, like reckoning that that has been at our doorstep banging and is now just sitting on the porch waiting for us to come out mm-hmm. like that happened this year the economic um, inequality reckoning that we're dealing with the like gendered mm-hmm. misogynistic reckoning like all these things are coming to a head and it's because we don't deal with the past we leave things there much to your point of wanting to take this whole year and put it in a time capsule yeah. and get rid of it right like we don't want to think about the past we don't want to try and think about the influence that the past has had on us. Instead, we just want to think about the future and enjoy the very present as much as we can. And mm-hmm. that past catches up with us. And it it doesn't just go away. You know, like mm-hmm. things get passed on. There is there is something about legacy and hereditary and the, the sort of genetic com- composition of like how our bodies are evolving right now and how they will be fundamentally different for generations to come. If we're asked Asking young people right now to have the hardest time with education and being in the classroom and morph all of that. You know, you and I teach right now at the at the college level. And I was mm-hmm. thinking the other day, who in the hell is going to be in our classes in two <laughs> years or in yeah. four years? Is anyone even no, going to totally go right. to college anymore in five mm-hmm. years? Because in five years, you're taking an eighth grader right now. You're taking mm-hmm. an eighth grader right now and getting them ready for college in four years in high school, that's all going to be on Zoom? Like, Mm -hmm. what are our college students going to be like in five Mm -hmm. years? And that's when we're really going to see that divide again, that huge divide between those who had a really okay time, didn't have to work, Mm -hmm. everybody was safe, they were out in the country at their vacation home during the COVID years, and those who were stuck in their apartment with all of their family members extended as well, Mm -hmm. and people died, and they got sick, and they weren't able to go to school because they had to help raise Mm -hmm. all of their siblings and cousins, you know, and I'm I think that what happens is when we put, you know, Whitey on Mars, we're thinking about that Mm -hmm. future that is so far off. And when I think about the future that's so far off, like that five years or 10 years from now, Mm -hmm. that's when the grief begins. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to think about that. (laughs) So I go back to, well, next month it'll be different. Tomorrow I'll call my mom, you know, (laughs) like, and, and, and this thing begins again. Right. And so here's what I want to know. We've been talking about a lot of things that have broken and how Mm -hmm. devastating they would be. And we've talked about things Mm -hmm. that have been broken and the impacts that they're having on us now in terms of maybe our economic priorities. And I want to know, do you have something in the last year that has been broken in your house or in your life that you have not fixed and you probably won't because it's not necessary anymore? (laughs) What is that? Uh, well, our microwave is broken (laughs) and we thought about not replacing the microwave, but I don't think we can do that because there's too many things that might get heated in the microwave. Um, I don't know I'm trying to think, let me, let me think for a second. If there's something that's broken that I wouldn't bother fixing. I can't think of anything. uh, I can't think of anything definitive. I mean, the only, I mean, I, Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because part of it is like, do I imagine life going back to normal or do I imagine life going to becoming something not normal? Right. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know exactly. I can't think of anything offhand. That's like, I've just like, no, I'm not going to need that anymore after COVID or I'm going to be able to leave that um, 
behind. I mean, I, there's a lot of things I would like to be able to say, yeah, I won't be needing this anymore. I'm going to take it out. I think there's a lot of things. I mean, there are a lot of things like just actual basic objects that I'm ready to get rid of. Like, I mean, we have tons of like clutter and whatever in our basement and our garage. And like, usually I'm like, oh, I just don't want to think about it. I don't care. But now I'm like, I want to get rid of some of that stuff. Like it's time for that stuff to go. So I think like maybe part of coming out of COVID will be like spring cleaning. And maybe yeah. some of that will be things for that were part of who we were in the past that were like, no, I'm done with that. I'm moving on. But I can't think of any one, any one example. Because there's just too many of them. Well, maybe apparently. there's too many. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, you know, I think that, yeah, I don't know. I'll give it some. Well, let me, let me switch directions then. I'll switch directions for my very last question to you for the very mm -hmm. last interview of this podcast. We began the podcast by asking everyone if this early time in March of shelter in place reminded you of any other previous time in your life and how did you get through that moment and how might you bring those into this moment? Well, now it's been a year that we've been in COVID time and we've got some new lessons of how we've gotten through this moment, which is very different than any other. And the question is, if you were to leave a message for your future self or for your daughter or for your grandchildren about how you get through hard times where you might feel hopeless, where you might feel uncomfortable about not knowing what's coming around the corner, and it feels very life and death and you're worried about all of those things and wondering what do you do and how do you get through this, what would you say is the advice for your future self when you're like, I don't even remember how I got through that time or for, <laughs> you know, uh, future generations that are related to you. What's the advice? What did you learn from this last year? Uh, I would say what I say <laughs> to my daughter, maybe every day or every other day, which is that it doesn't last forever. So that's one thing we know for sure, like in terms of living through a time of change, you know, this, what we're living through right now will not be forever. And it's difficult and it might be painful. It might be hard, but, um, you know, we have to remember that, you know, I, I think that it's very easy to become like stuck in, um, stuck like in a, a cycle of, of hopelessness or feeling, you know, we were talking about grief of feeling kind of the, you know, dark or darkness, but that this is, um, you know, I mean, it's so, so trite. I mean, none of this, like, is all of this is trite, but like this too shall pass kind of thinking is, you know, you realize there's a reality to a tangible reality to that, that um, is, you, you need that you, we rely on that every day in our normal lives, right? That the future will be different than the present moment is. And it's like, you know, it's the thing, like you fall off your bike and you skin your knee, you know, if you fall off your bike and skin your knee, and that went on for a year, it would be like, fuck, this is hopeless, right? Um, <laughs> but it doesn't, right? I mean, it hurts, you bleed, and then life goes on. And I think that, you know, I was actually reading, uh, I don't know, I mean, this is kind of like, totally out of left field, but um, Nick Cave just released a new album. And um, he had this comment that was just so like, so like prescient, I think. And he's like, you know, I uh, am a recovering heroin addict. And so like COVID and isolation to me is completely familiar. He's like, as a, as a heroin act, I was totally used to severing ties with the people I knew and cared about and living alone in isolation and becoming wrapped up in the self. And I think that 
like that experience of addiction or of, um, you know, experiencing that kind of darkness, you know, his point was, look, you know, some people know this, you know, they're familiar with this and, and other people don't. And, you know, the moment that we're living through, um, you know, I think his point was, was that, you know, as an addict, he wouldn't be here or able to share with us what that experience was, but he's somebody through his art and through a lot of other experiences he's had in life is here to share that with us. Right. So, I mean, I think to say that this won't go on forever or that this won't last forever is also to say, we're going to be different people in the future. And we don't know what we're going to be able to do or accomplish. Right. I mean, you know, we were talking about, you know, issues of racial justice or a lot of the calamities and painful things that we are and, have experienced lately in our lives, we don't know what we're going to be able to do with that, right? We don't know the people we're going to become in the future. And so I do think that there's a certain sense that, you know, we, we should hope that hope dies last, right? That like, that's the last thing you give up because you need that to become that different person. And, you know, you can't really, I can't really figure out a way to explain that to my daughter because she's so young. You have to think in your own life, how did you learn that? Right. Because, you know, most people, when they encounter darkness, they want to turn, they want to turn away. Right. You want to like, as you say, you don't want to look back and see the pain and whatever you want to go think about Mars Rover and wow, that was fantastic. But I do think that um, I have a new appreciation for darkness, right? Like, I think maybe we all do in a certain way, because I think, you know, it doesn't mean that that things have a good outcome, because for many people, they don't. But I think that, you know, yeah, I, you know, this doesn't last forever. Life is too weird and varied. And yes, sometimes tragic and sad and overwhelming, but also sometimes, you know, serendipitous and crazy and, you know, whatever. So I think that, you know, one of the goals that I have is just to remember that even though we go into this Groundhog's Day, like we did a a year ago and every day seems the same and we're going around and around, you know, you know, this doesn't last forever. Things do change. We change as people and there'll come a time when we can start to see that more probably or experience that more. And I would imagine there'll come a time hopefully not soon that we take that for granted again. Right. But I do think maybe that'll be one thing um, to carry forward. I mean, it's fun to fantasize about the person that you'll be right. Like after this, like what kind of weird lives will we have when we come out of this? Um, I think a lot about. That's the one thing that kept me going recently. You know, I had an interview with, with Susan on this podcast and it was, um, you know, uh, season four. And I said, how are you getting through this time? And she said, I am thinking about, you know, maybe six months from now when the sun is out again and it's <laughs> spring because it was like, you know, sort of late mm-hmm. fall. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking about what I want to do in the spring and in the summer. And so I'm using that distance that I have between now and then to then get ready. I'm like backwards planning. If in the spring mm-hmm. and summer, I want to be hiking and swimming and, and maybe going on a road trip, you know, then what mm-hmm. do I have to do now? to get ready for that. Right. That's the opposite Mm -hmm. of grief. You know, if you're like, well, in six months, I'm going to die, you know, like sometimes, (laughs) sometimes in six months, I'm going to die also puts you into action. So you're like, okay, what am I going to do between now and then? And how do I want to live that Mm -hmm. life? Right. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that's been interesting to listen to you over the last year is that while yes, nothing, nothing will, will last for forever. This too shall pass at the same time. One of the ways from the outside 
that I've seen you get through this time <laughs> is to actually keep doing the things. Like mm -hmm. if there's something that you can keep doing, like you don't have to give up everything, find yeah. something or a series of things that you can keep or that mm -hmm. can become new that you are dedicated yeah. to, you know, I, you skied before COVID you're skiing. Mm -hmm. Now you hiked before COVID with your dog. You're hiking now with your dog. Mm -hmm. Like there's some things that have been grounding for you mm -hmm. that may feel different. Now you mm -hmm. might have a different experience and relationship to it, but it has mm -hmm. stayed while you have changed. And I yeah. think that, that that is definitely something, um, that I would, would like to, you know, remind you of, um, mm -hmm. that it's seeing you from the outside is how you've gotten through this is, is you're still doing all of that. Definitely. And those things become more meaningful too, which I think is another thing that is uncomfortable or hard to talk about maybe in some ways, but you know, I, you know, I would have to say like, without a doubt that, you know, this last year has acquainted me, I think with deep, deep, kind of, not just darkness, right, but also like joy in different ways than I typically experienced it in the past. And I think that is, you know, true of lots of people who go through trauma, right, or have an experience of dealing with, um, with stress right. or darkness. But I think that, you know, for me is also really, uh, really important. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's an amazing time to be alive is a crazy thing to say, right? But it is amazing. Like, and you don't always get to see that amazingness as clearly as we get to see it now. Unfortunately, you just have <laughs> right. to see the, the parts of it that are, you know, dark yeah. and difficult too, right? Up close and personal, but yeah. Well, thank you, Patrick, for the time now and the time mm -hmm. over the last year. And um, I'm excited to uh, put this time capsule cap on slowly uh, and <laughs> <Use> cautiously. <it>. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Patrick. Wrap it in chains and, and, and drop no, it into the river. <laughs> no, no. And to preserve it and cherish it oh. and leave it for folks in the future to be able to, and even if it's just us, to be able to open it back up and look back and go, oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's what we thought then. Um, and I, I yep. wonder what, what we will all think of um, listening to this later. Like, yep. will we all eventually get it? Will we not <laughs> even be here to listen to any of this? So we don't know, but somebody well, on Mars you. might. Yep, exactly. <laughs> the Rover will report back to us. Hopefully Only we didn't we bring COVID to here. Mars. I mean, exactly. yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Did we bring COVID <laughs> Can you imagine? to Mars? I know. That would be a disaster. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast sponsored by the New Economy Coalition, a membership-based network representing the solidarity economy movement in the United States. Visit NEC at neweconomy.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.